Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. I'm here with RCD contributor John Waters. John, good as always to talk to you. Hi, John. Good to be here. Today we are speaking with Calder Walton, the author of a new book, Spies, the Epic Intelligence War Between the East and West. Walton is the assistant director of the Harvard Belfer Center for Applied History and Intelligence Project. He is also the author of the three-volume Cambridge History of Espionage and Intelligence and Empire of Secrets, British Intelligence, the Cold War, and the Twilight of Empire. Calder Walton, welcome to Hot Wash. Thanks so much for having me, John. It's great to be here. I'm making my way through the book. Um, I'm really, really enjoying it. It's really a three-way biography. It moves very seamlessly between the story from the uh, Soviet perspective, from the British perspective, and from the American perspective in this three-way battle for intelligence during the Cold War. Talk to us about what's new in here, the access that you had to archives, and how that really changed our understanding of what happened during the Cold War. Thanks, John. Thanks for the question. Well, um, and I'm, it's great to hear that you're enjoying it. I, I should say, first of all, I loved writing it. It was a labor of love. It's, it it, it took, took me six years to write. Um, it's as old as my son. Uh, so it feels like <laughs> my child in many ways. Um, what's new in it um, than other histories of the Cold War? Well, I, I've used records that some of which were only declassified last year. Um, this is sort of as as recent as it can get. And the thing that I try to do in this book is that like there are many histories of intelligence and espionage, as as, as you know. Um, there are very few histories of intelligence that look at both the Russian, the Soviet side, and the Western side, and try to, to weave them together, the narrative, to try to figure out what actually was happening during the Cold War. And crucially, what difference did it all actually make? You know, you can, in this, in this strange world that you and I know about, you can quite quickly go down a rabbit hole uh, of the sort of the, the, the wilderness of mirrors and lose perspective and say, actually, what difference did it make? So the overall conclusion I come to, and I think where the book makes a difference, is the greatest success of Western intelligence agencies, the British and the US, was at key points helping the Cold War turn into a hot nuclear war. We saw this during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we saw this during the Able Archer that you and I just briefly chatted about before we came on air. Um, this was the sort of the great unsung, if you like, achievement of Western intelligence agencies. How, how does that compare to what the Soviet intelligence services did? Well, they actually prolonged the Cold War by keeping Soviet citizens effectively incarcerated. And then because of the nature of Soviet rule, of authoritarian rule, in the Soviet Union, like Russia today. This meant that at key moments, Soviet leaders were given intelligence by their intelligence services that did not challenge their worldviews, but confirmed it. So we have a, a, a striking imbalance between Western services, um, which, when they all came together at key points, were able to provide decision makers in the White House or on 10 Downing Street with key intelligence. And then more often than not, uh, in Moscow, the intelligence services warped the uh, understanding of, of Kremlin leaders about the outside world. So that's really the overall thing. And, and it has, writing this, John, um, it wasn't just sort of history, uh, you know, from far away the last century, but in many ways living history. Because, of course, the man in the Kremlin at the moment, Vladimir Putin, is a former KGB officer who does not view this as by history from a bygone era, but, but live history. Absolutely. And I, I think that that's one of the most interesting parts is how you begin, which is really to talk about that period where uh, the Cold War had essentially already started, but the, the, the Brits and the Americans 
really didn't perceive it that way. Uh, and that the Soviet intelligence apparatus was spun up way before. And just the guilelessness of the Americans, especially, you know, and I think there's this, this through popular fiction, this, this impression of, of the Brits as being the masters of the trade craft going all the way back to Queen Elizabeth and Walsingham and, and, and the rest. But they were pretty flat-footed too. Uh, talk about that period before we commonly understand the the Cold War to begin, and uh, at what kind of a disadvantage were the Americans and the and the Brits already starting off from? That's absolutely right. When when I learned it at school, and maybe you know, as, as as you and your listeners might remember learning the Cold War at school, we often think of it as starting in 1947-48. This was sort of when things got going. But in fact, if you look at th- this history through Soviet intelligence archives and the activities of the, of the Soviet services, we can see that in 1945, 46, 47, as you just pointed out, the Americans, well, first of all, America at that point didn't even have a foreign intelligence agency, right? In 1945, President Truman made the decision to uh, close down uh, the wartime Office of Strategic Services, and the CIA wasn't established until 1947. During the Second World War, when the Western allies became allied with the Soviet Union overnight with Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union, the Western powers, the Great, the great, uh, great Britain and the United States, thought that they were genuinely allies with the Soviet Union. Stalin did not think that way. And we can now see from Soviet records conducted and dedicated massive intelligence onslaught on his Western allies. The most striking, um, devastating consequence of it was to steal the secrets of the wartime Anglo-American atom bomb project. This meant that in 1945, Stalin, thanks to his spies in Los Alamos in the Manhattan Project, Stalin had actually obtained the, 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 the blueprints, the plans of the atomic bomb. This meant that Four years later, in 1949, uh, when the Soviets finally, when they when they detonated their own Soviet uh, atomic bomb, um, it was an exact replica of the um, bomb that the Americans had built. So this this alone changed history, and this was the most the most extreme um, example of a much wider uh, attack by Soviet wartime intelligence to steal as much scientific and technical intelligence as possible. So what so John what I the conclusion that I come to is that um and I should I say I should say I was born in this country in the US. I love this country. So I feel feel allowed to say this to criticize it. Um what America does very well the US government is to do very well one thing at once, okay? So once America enters the war, it's very good at defeating the Axis powers. Once we get going, we realize what the, um, the the true nature of the Soviet Union were very good about building an intelligence capability from right. scratch. Right. What we're not good at doing is doing two things at once, right? And it seems to me that there's a just a chilling parallel with 9-11 and the post-9-11 war on terror and what was the US government doing about resurgent great powers, China and Russia. Well, and, so then, very- and then the recent pivot <laughs> as well. I mean, the, you know, uh, the downsizing of the, the Russia desk, you know, during the, the forever war, through, during the global war on terror, uh, you know, now the fact that the U.S. had as, as good intelligence as it did prior to the, the latest invasion of Ukraine is, yeah. is, is to its credit but it, it, you know it, I, i'm i'm reading those early sections about downsizing after world war ii or even you know uh you know even in the 30s um that how from the very beginning what the what the russians perceived is we need to get illegals in the country and we need to turn people on the on the british side at the beginning of the pipeline. And so those two things of the establishment, the INO's establishment of the, the illegals program in, in the US, in New York, the trade associations, all of that, and the 
you know what what would become the Cambridge Five in in the UK. It, it just has it has twenty thirty years worth of of ripple effects. Um, talk a little bit on the on the the U.S. side. How important was that establishment of the those legals in 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 the U.S. from the beginning before the U.S. is really even aware that it's that that it's an issue. That's exactly it. So on both sides of the Atlantic, the strategy of Soviet intelligence in the 30s was the same. And they were far more advanced than anything, as you pointed out in the introduction, anything that the British could muster, let alone the US government. Um, So at a time when Britain's intelligence services were in many ways one man and dog operations, (laughs) literally, (laughs) the Soviet intelligence services in in, in the 30s were... employing tradecraft that involve things like recruiting recent university graduates and then getting them uh, like the Cambridge spies and like what I call the Ivy League spies that were that were um, being recruited on the on this side of the Atlantic at the same time and then getting them to enter into the hallways of power either in London or in Washington this gave Stalin during the Second World War unprecedented political intelligence on his allies, but who, he, whom he regarded would inevitably, according to his reading of Marxism, be his long-term um, enemies. This was so. This was the nature of political intelligence, understanding um, what his ideological uh, enemies would do regarding the Soviet Union. But along with that political intelligence was scientific and technical secrets and industrial industrial levels of espionage. And again, the Cambridge spies, uh, one Cambridge spy of the five, the so-called five Cambridge spies, one of them giving the earliest available intelligence to Stalin that the British government was planning on building an atomic weapon. So this was this meant that at points, Stalin knew more about what the British government was doing um, or the American government was doing than they often shared with each other. It was a, when, you, when, you, when you see it with hindsight now, what was going on, it's just absolutely striking. So it also meant that um, thanks to the, the, the skill of his operatives, um, that, that Stalin's Englishmen or Americans were able to um, sabotage and frustrate uh, all of the efforts on the part of um, the U.S. and British intelligence about the Soviet Union, both during the war and then crucially after the war. Let me let me frame something. When talking about intelligence, it can get very nebulous. Yeah, but you have to get into the psychologies behind collection and analysis, and then you end up inevitably in a very anecdotal narrow tale of one person. So I want to start with the psychology of Russian leaders, work my way into KGB, into Putin. You write in the book that during World War II, during detente in the 1970s, you write that during periods when diplomatic relationships were ostensibly good between the United States and Russia or the Soviet Union, that Russia increased espionage. Describe the psychology or the logic behind increasing espionage when it appeared that relations were good between our countries. Well, in the Soviet in the Soviet period in in, in the Cold War, um, this was predominantly due to ideology, and there's a there's a sort of a tendency with many observers in uh, the West, uh, in intelligence communities or policymakers, to sort of in, in the during detente to dismiss, for example, um, the role of ideology and say, well, it's not really, they don't really believe in Marxist-Leninism. It's more uh, about great power competition or something like that. We find that a lot in, dare I say, political science circles in this country. Turns out that no, actually the leaders really did, successive Kremlin leaders really did believe in Marxist-Leninism. They were true believers. Different, Different styles, sure. But it meant their prime ideological enemy, they took it seriously, was the United States and all that it stood for. So once you understand that, why would they not, when the defense, Western defenses, particularly the US, are lowered, 
cease to exploit it. In many ways, that's what all, all states would do, I guess. Um, although at key points, as I point out in the book, Western intelligence agencies did not do that. So again, during the Second World War, Britain's foreign office, as soon as the Soviet Union entered the Second World War, what does Britain's foreign office do? They say, absolute moratorium embargo on all intelligence collection on the Soviet Union. Why? Because, quote, allies don't spy on allies. Like, oh my, looking at this. <laughs> well, and the, the detail of, of, you know, while Bill Donovan, the, you know, the, the start of the OSS, you know, giving the code book back to the Russians. It just, it just beggars belief. I mean, Bill Donovan uh, famously said that he would put, um, he would put Stalin on OSS payroll if it meant defeating Hitler. And unfortunately, um, he was more right than he knew because his <laughs> his his um, trusted aide, uh, right hand man, was a Soviet agent, um, and OSS was riddled with Soviet agents throughout its ranks. So that's the ideological that's the ideological imper- drive, I would say, uh, to answer your question during the Cold War. Post Cold War, Russia. I think that what we're seeing play out today uh, in Ukraine is a flashpoint of something that is a much deeper systemic uh, problem that we that we're all going to have to encounter with Russia. That Putin, the way that Putin thinks about the United States, is driven by his revanchist hostility um, about what he regards as the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and how the post-Cold War international security framework uh, driven by the United States is, as he, as Putin sees it, not democratic, but a form of US imperialism. He's been saying this since his Munich security speech in 2007, so he hasn't changed his tune. So when we think that we're doing things like a Russia reset and you have Putin in the Kremlin, I'm afraid he has a very, very, very different view of the West than we do of Russia. That's a respectful opinion. Yeah, that's a very respectful perspective. I think in popular media, it's too easy to chalk up decisions that we see play out from Russia as a result of paranoia uh, from Stalin, from uh, even before Stalin, Peter the Great and Ivan the Terrible, that there's just this tradition that runs through Russian autocrats of being paranoid. You say, no, it's truly ideological and we're not grasping how different they are than we. Is that right? I think that's right. And, you know, I mean, you have to remember that Stalin Stalin was a conspiracy theorist and, I'm, that, you know, and he, he was paranoid. But in the early stages of the the, the early Soviet state, um, the Western allies, Britain and the United States and others, did try to unseat the Bolshevik regime. So, you know, it's sort of when I think about this, it's like, you know, um, remember that Woody Allen um, <laughs> film where they say, you know, there's a, there's a word for somebody like being completely paranoid. There's a word for pe- someone like you and say, yeah, I know observant right, <laughs> right. so 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 yeah. uh, it, it, the the ideology was as always with um con- conspiracy right. theorists it's rooted in a in a kernel of truth which is that the the bolsheviks were genuinely churchill himself led the crusade against the bolsheviks in 1917 18 19 so little wonder skip forward to then the second world war and stalin doesn't really believe uh, that Churchill now now in power has changed his 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 tune. Um, so and it's this it, we see the same with Putin, who who from Putin's perspective, NATO um, uh, expansion right up to his borders, the fact that NATO continued to exist after the Cold War is to him he needs little convincing that it is by definition hostile to Russia. So I think and 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 both. Putin and Xi, in their now in their their alliance agreement of no limits, they see themselves as containing U.S. imperialism, and and we could, so it's 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 just such a mistake to say 
um, that's nonsense. It may well be nonsense, but if they, the problem is that they believe it. So it means we have to actually understand it, right? It's sort of like, yeah, it, it, it's no, you can't just dismiss it and say, no, we're not, NATO doesn't really pose a threat. It's like, yeah, but that's not the point is that they believe it does. So you can like argue with this till the cows come home, but the fact they believe it means we've got a problem. And I want to, I do want to get to your thoughts on assassination. That's kind of where I'm working toward. It was a big takeaway in the book. And I want to, I want to gauge your thoughts on how real the threat is from the mindset of Xi or Putin of being relieved from command lethally. I think it is. And I want to get there. But first, you talked a few minutes ago about the OSS, the predecessor to CIA. I want to do a comparison. Tell me how the CIA scopes and approaches its mission as compared to KGB. Hmm. Well, um, how the C- I think it depends on when you're talking about with the CIA. You, like early, early on. For- Let's talk modern day. Oh, modern day, as opposed to the KGB or Russia's services. Well, the 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 biggest single difference it seems to me is in its recruitment in the CIA's recruitment, past and present, of of some of the great successful agents. They are motivated, and the CIA recruits them. Yes, certainly through through money, often a lot of it, um, and also ideology, a belief in what the United States stands for, and a disgust at their regime, um, be it the Soviet Union or Russia today. That's why uh, your listeners may have seen that uh, news a few weeks ago about the the new CIA video that came out, um, which was aimed at recruiting Russians who are despondent and dis- disgruntled. Hmm. That's actually, you know, it's a new technique, but the underlying issues of agent recruitment um that's the that's same as ever hmm. um that lies in sharp contrast to the commonplace tactic on the part of russia services past and present to use compromat blackmail extortion in order to recruit people i've got an article coming out um next week on a tranche of british files mi5 files that just were released at the end of last year um, about a um, a British code clerk um, behind the Iron Curtain in the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s, um, who was gay at a time when being gay in Britain was illegal. And the KGB um, used a honey trap, honey pot, um, gay honey pot operation to recruit him uh, to uh, blackmail him into working for them. These files lay it all out there in just awful detail about how they went about their work. So that, you know, to, to answer your question, the, the biggest takeaway is it, it was put to me like this by a Russian FSB defector who I interviewed for the book. So this this defector uh, uh, was working in the FSB in the late 1990s, early 2000s. He said that the only single limitation of what the FSB would do. It was not ever driven by any moral or ethical considerations. It was only ever limited by operational effectiveness. Can we get away with this? Will it work? And that, it does lie in sharp contrast to Western services like the CIA, where there are um, ethical considerations about um, undertaking operations. That's not to say that there have been terrible abuses of... um, um, by U.S. intelligence agencies in the past, um, but but overall, it's it's like comparing apples and oranges. It seems to me. Um, yes, they both both CIA and Russian intelligence uh, services both um, recruit agents. That that's like saying you know like that they're similar. It's like saying well, all armies have have weapons. Yeah, but like look how they they're used by different armies. So um, very very. Fun. There's no, I mean, basically, John, there's, you know, it's always important to remember that there's no rule of law in Russia, just as there's not in China. There's no free independent press checking on the activities of its intelligence services. Um, there's no public accountability. So all of that framework um, that we hold that is so important for the US and in, in the Western world is simply missing in Russia or China. So little wonder that, that the intelligence services become uh, states within a state. 
intelligence gets lumped together in this in these multiple aims of of you know counter political intelligence trying to understand what your adversary is doing in terms of negotiations uh, technological yeah. intelligence trying to either stay in parity or get ahead or save millions and millions of dollars in time to catch up yeah. you know which which the the Soviet Union from the beginning saw that as really their only hope for you know coming from a an agrarian you know empire peasant. up to a yeah, yeah. peasant uh, agrarian yeah. empire but there's also within the cold war this this whole set of direct action and that that kind of the dullest years right after the war once once the cia actually understood that it was in the middle of a fight yeah. and this idea that you know it's very nicomachean it's very like well, this government is either for us or against us, and we're either going to destabilize them or we're going to prop them up. And the vast majority, I mean, the CIA has both been guilty and accused of everything under the sun, but um, yeah. the things that it's 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 genuinely done and the things that are, are genuinely, arguably, I should say, uh, uh, contrary to to our our values. Uh, yeah. often have to do with either working with horrible, horrible regimes or uh, yeah. or using direct action to destabilize them. I think one of the larger themes in the book is, as you said at the top, about how it's that kind of direct action that either amplified the Cold War or prolonged the Cold War in, in some ways. How Take us through, through how effective actually was the West – or, or you know, maybe we could contrast that with with the Soviet Union in terms of uh, propping up or destabilizing its its partners. It had some successes, but I think in the minds of both popular fiction and Americans, and even the supposedly well informed administrations yeah. at various times, is is people thought that the CIA and and uh, and the British uh, intelligence services were more capable than they were, perhaps. So t- draw that line and uh, really, is that something that, uh, you know, in the long run was an effective strategy? Well, to answer your last question first, was it an effective strategy? I think that any reasonable look at this would have to say no, that this, that the, the, the covert actions launched by um, the British and the U.S. Um, to counter uh, e- equally um, – major KGB active measures campaigns in what was called the third world. What was the net result of all of this? Um, Very little in terms of the superpower conflict between East and West, um, and often with terrible results for the countries that were um, targeted by both sides. So certainly at the end of the Cold War, the, the, the CIA's covert action program in Afghanistan contributed to the end of the Cold War. So we have to acknowledge that. And that's one of the few examples um, that I sort of, that's one of the few things that I came to in terms of conclusion of um, where a um, so-called third world country um, and the activities of Western agencies and the Soviets played a pivotal role. But otherwise, I mean, the, the, the countries I spent longer than I care to admit, uh, reading their dossiers on African leaders that both the KGB and the British and Americans were trying to influence. I mean, time and time again, you just have to put the dossier down. You're like, what was going on here? Why were there all of these resources? But it was taken really seriously at the time, which is the, the Soviet leadership um, thought that the Cold War could be won, uh, four and one in the third world. And they plowed resources into doing doing that. Um, when when the Cold War reached stalemate in Europe, the so-called Third World, the Global South, as we would now call it, um, became the future battleground for that conflict. Um, so it's a it's I'm afraid it's a it's a dismal story. Um, and do you do, I mean were you gathering from reading that? There was an awareness at the time. I mean, CIA has an office of history. Some of those yep. internal histories are 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 fairly critical. But Absolutely. you know, do you think that that there was an awareness within the intelligence 
it, you know, uh, community of the potential for the blowback, the, you know, the, the long-term consequences of destabilizing these regions that, you know, it, it wasn't so much that, that it was never a win, you know, it was right. a momentary destabilization yeah. often at the, at the cost of the people who lived in those countries. Well, I think that the, the sort of the biggest corrective to this narrative that uh, I, I believe my book helps to, to make is that, you know, with the church commission, um, famously Senator uh, Frank Church said that the CIA was like a rogue elephant. Okay. And that from then on, you can still find this um, in, in the literature um, books and stuff published about it, which is that this was the CIA that was um, pursuing these sort of rogue um, actions. Uh, in fact, CIA was acting at the behest of successive White House administrations. So executive action, the emphasis on the word executive. So um, what you find in whether it's Chile or um, Iran earlier, you know, some of these great infamous uh, stories of CIA covert action coups is they were being instructed to do this by policymakers. And it's the policymakers. You look on the, I spent time looking at like Eisenhower's National Security um, um, Committee um, notes from around the time of uh, the Iran coup in 1953. They really seem to be believing that um, there's a genuine Soviet menace there and that they're instructing uh, the CIA to overthrow uh, the regime in order to safeguard American interests against the Soviets. Quite where this was coming from, nobody really knows. So there's another layer there of why didn't the CIA correct that narrative? So as, as with so much in, in Washington, I fear it was sort of like a, a snowball and no one um, with a lot of these covert actions in the middle of the Cold War was brave, en brave enough to pump the, the brakes and say, what are we actually doing? What's the purpose of it? Right, right. Well, and, and, and uh, I mean, the, the, the mystique of the CIA and, and the other intelligence services, it contributes to their institutional power. It contributes to their budgets. It contributes to their internal influence within the, the respective states. And so to you know i think that's another thing that you see throughout is the unwillingness to admit like oh yeah uh this was not such a great day for us you know exactly <laughs> that uh, you yeah. know the the just kind of blundering nature i mean what do you what do you say about am i i guess it's in my six early on if if if, if the british public realized about us uh like, no exactly i mean the mi6 at the time um desperately needed to, um, this is in the 1950s, make up for some of the catastrophic uh, espionage scandals, uh, which revealed how badly they had done and that they had been, been penetrated. So one way of doing that was to go on overseas adventures, if you like, with the CIA. And this was a quite what the British design was uh, over Iran in 1953. Was it re did they really believe it was about communism or was it really about oil? I think that it was really all just about oil. Uh, you never really see it written down in a memo just like that, but it's it's pretty clear reading between the lines. Well, and and when you create this worldview, I mean, everything is self-rationalizing. So uh, you know that the 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 resources of the greater Western alliance are really what's necessary to create you know the the massive nuclear buildup and the you know, Soviet Warsaw Pact and it's, you know, it's virtual empire are what's necessary. Yeah. It, it takes the, the blood and treasure of an empire to prop up in the case of the Soviets, a, you know, an internally directed police state, as well as, you know, a massive, massive technological effort, um, for the, for the nuclear defense complex. And, you know, to a certain extent, the, that's true on the, on the Western side as well, I think. I think you just you, you summarized it better than I could. John. <laughs> <laughs> it, it looks like John, if the other John, have you got a question? Did I see? It looked like you, Calder. I want to chase yeah. an idea though that came to me yeah. as I read your book, and it pertains to assassination. First, yeah. why was assassination so important during the Cold War? 
for both sides or for, uh, I think I would say um, we, assassination was of paramount importance for the Kremlin. Um, why was this? Well, it followed the Stalinist model of, quote, no man, no problem. Removing a, a person was the surest way to get rid of that problem. So what I paint in the, the picture I paint in the book uh, using records from Ukrainian archives is how Ukrainian exiled nationalist leaders were so high up on the Kremlin kill lists um, and they used some remarkable, uh, extravagant and painful ways in order to eliminate uh, Ukrainian exiled leaders uh, in, in the West. So one of the, the, the one person's dossier who I've got hold of is Stepan Bandera, uh, the great uh, Ukrainian nationalist leader um, who was assassinated by the KGB in 1959 um, in West Germany. Um, this, to get back to our earlier point, isn't some distant relic of the past for Putin today because he calls Zelensky a Banderite traitor working with the West. So this is, it, you have to completely change your understanding or your view. So for the Kremlin today, for its intelligence services, the past assassination programs aren't things that they are like embarrassed about or like try to airbrush out of history is actually that they are proud of them. Hmm. And in the Russian intelligence services, in their historical quote memory rooms, portraits hang of some of the most prolific um, past KGB murderers. Hmm. So this is to get back to, John, the other John, your point about um, the differences between um, what Western agencies did overseas um, in, the, in the middle of the Cold War and what the Soviets did. Um, when the US government was involved in repugnant activities, these were in almost always later revealed and I certainly speak to CIA um, officers who joined in the 1980s. This these sort of dark period of the 1950s and 60s is sort of considered with with shame. And this is completely the opposite of Russia services today, uh, which still has a policy of assassination. Your listeners may have seen the news that was broken in the New York Times this morning, um, which is a grew out of a story in my book, which is that Russia's intelligence services were in the late stage planning of an assassination on US soil in 2020. So the New York Times, I wrote about this in, in my book, the New York Times um, got hold of the story and um, they have confirmed what I wrote in the book. So it's just come out today um, and it seems to me that this terrifying um, story of Putin's desire to carry out a hit on US soil of a US person, a former Russian spy, a CIA spy in Russian intelligence. Um, this brings the US directly in line of the similar assassination policies that Putin's conducted in Britain and in, um, in, in Europe. There's always, 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 always been a bright red line um, during the Cold War uh, and today that Russia's intelligence services would not sanction hits on US soil. And it appears, well, New York Times has now confirmed, that Putin was prepared to breach that red line um, as recently as 2020. That's interesting. And I want to stay on the theme of assassination. Are you familiar with a book? It came out several years ago now from The Intercept reporter, Jeremy Scahill, he called it The Assassination Complex. And I think he was he was taking some creative license in that title, but it was about targeted killings that the US 
kind of developed expertise in through 20 years of the war on terror. And I wonder, can you draw a through line, Calder, do you think, from the no man, no problem mindset in the Cold War through the global war on terror and the development of a United States capability to find, fix, and kill leadership personalities in to date in combat zones? So I would look at it slightly differently, which is as it was presented to me uh, by a former CIA officer who was closely involved in the post 9-11 war on terror, counter terrorist operations that involved targeted killings that the CIA doesn't like the word assassination, but that's off. I don't know why. Anyway, um, it's a legalese. Um, when the CIA was um, getting this new policy going, um, this one CIA officer said, I guess we're back in the assassination business like we were in the 1950s and 60s. Um, so I wouldn't draw the through line from the Soviet experience. I would draw the, the through line from the KG, from the CIA's experience in the early period of the Cold War. Um, the difference is that often these assassinations, targeted killings are done by uh, drones, um, which uh, make the whole thing, and I don't know the book you mentioned, but I presume the author gets into this, make, makes the whole um, process, it depersonalizes everything. It's that much easier to, to take out uh, a target uh, from the safety of a, of a drone uh, in a way that it just wasn't beforehand. So um, that's the through line that I would draw is um, the US government CIA um, got back into the assassination business post 9-11. The reason it's interesting to me, thinking through 20 years of the war on terror, when Saddam Hussein was captured, it was almost by accident that elite army operators stumbled upon the spider hole in which he was hiding. But by January of 2020, you'll recall when the United States executed a strike mission on Qasem Soleimani traveling in Iraq. It was very quick, very precise. There was a small window to operate, and the mission was a success. I think there were troops on the ground in a support role, but it was a drone strike. What I, the point to all this is the U.S. has proven a very significant capability. How does that capability, do you think, play into the psychologies of someone like President Putin? Or she, other leaders. Uh, there was a there was an attempted drone attack on the Kremlin not too long ago, but I wonder your perspective on that question. So, I can't remember if it's the video of Saddam or Gaddafi, um, but one of them, Putin has watched over and over and over and over again, um, and the overthrow of Saddam and then Gaddafi was for Putin the clearest evidence that the US government was in the business of regime change. And he could say to his domestic audiences and then within his own psychology, they're coming to get me. They're coming to get you. So this is explains just so much, it seems to me, about Putin's mentality, which is the US government, the hidden hand of the US government is everywhere. It foments um, unrest in the near abroad. Um, it has a policy of regime change. Uh, the US government hates me, Putin, uh, so why wouldn't they be doing uh, everything they could to eliminate me? Um, We just don't have, it seems to me, the same visibility on the mental attitude of Xi. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I would be uncomfortable to sort of say whether he genuinely believes, you know, that in the same way. But the uh, the overall picture is clear, which is that what she's doing, along with Putin, is to try to contain 
um, the U.S. government and all of its clandestine activities um, in the same exact same mirror of the way that we in the U.S. are seeking to contain them. So that's it seems to me, gents, where we are. <laughs> One of the things that I think I would like you to address is. Well, at, at various points in history on both sides, that the the internal architecture of each respective government and specifically its intelligence community, the factionalism within the intelligence community has been often a real key weakness. And certainly uh, with uh, with the, the Soviets and then, and then with Putin's Russia, that unwillingness to provide honest intelligence – the uh, the mm. offsetting of you know whether it's GRU versus KGB or you know SVR FSB and and with uh, GU now instead of GRU yeah. you know that you know whether it's Wagner versus Shoiko you know whatever it is that that yeah. on the yeah. Russian side you know what does that tell us about Putin's approach and perhaps really what the the best strategy is to 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 counter that approach so i think the best analogy um for putin's court is not actually anything to do with the soviet union right but actually it's more like a medieval court where there are barons fighting for court each other Peter the Great, perhaps, where, you know. exactly that's exactly it and that's always been there of course in in the soviet period there were different factions competing and different agencies and so on and the same is of course true in in western services but to your point the the nature of putin's regime and putin is increasingly it seems to me becoming more and more like stalin that bloodletting in his court means there is little if no chance that he's going to get intelligence that actually challenges his views. And the whole world saw this. Your listeners will remember that on the eve of the invasion, this that bizarre Russian National Security Council uh, oh, meeting. Public that was shaming. And, it was yeah. and, <laughs> yeah. and exactly. And 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 if you remember, um, it was it was obviously pre-recorded because people's watches were at different times and stuff. But his public humiliation of the SVR's director, Sergei Nerishkin, sort of bumbling over his words. And Putin said, no, 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 no we haven't got to that bit yet. It's obviously just all you know, choreographed. You're off script. Um, Wait a second. <laughs> that, you're, off, you're off script. I mean, this is literally, this is Stalinist levels of um, crippling sycophancy. So li- little wonder that um, the intelligence that, that Putin was given when, if or when one day we find out exactly what, what he was being given, chances are, just like Stalin before him, it was um, pleasing or what, what the Soviets called, KGB called patriotic intelligence, which was, <laughs> don't, don't. <laughs> the kind of intelligence that keeps you alive. That's exactly uh. it. Ex- exactly. So um, I hope that's, that's what, uh, an attempt to, to answer your question anyway. Well, I, my my own editorializing is hopefully that um, every you know Western service takes that to heart as that's what's absolutely to be avoided, you know, and that uh, you know anytime an institution takes a hard look at what it's done wrong, yeah. what it's done contrary to our values, uh, it's absolute failures. Uh, for example, Afghanistan, um, among others, uh, the kinds of you know I. I mean, John's whole question line about our targeted killing program, mm. our drone program, mm. was that effective? Was it not? It, that seems to have just completely dropped off of ev- every radar. And I think that, um, you know, and, and and that being conscious of, I mean, in some ways, I feel like the Western intelligence, at least within the, the, the U.S. administration, there's been a hyper-centralization in the executive office and the NSC in terms of directing those intelligence programs, Mm. it's almost like we flattened Mm. too Mm. much. There's almost, you know, um, you know, previously there was kind of an FBI CIA, uh, you know, turf battle and uh, NSA was over in the corner, sweeping up all the money, (laughs) taking all of the, uh, all of the budget. 
Um, but uh, you know that that going too far in the other direction has its has its weaknesses as, as well. Um, so I don't I don't know as I mentioned before I don't know the book that you mentioned John Assassination Complex but I do know um, the extraordinary book by Ronan Bergman called Rise and Kill First about Israeli Mossad targeted uh, assassinations targeted killings and it's very much uh, his conclusion of this this extraordinary story that he that he reveals of um israeli assassinations at the end asking that 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 important question so what what difference did it make and you know what was the point of it all and he basically says quite rightly in my view that you can't have a strategy just built around killing people because it doesn't actually solve the underlying issues of why people are doing what they're doing and so it's like literally chopping off the heads, you know, of a, of a hydra. Another one will just come up. But until you actually uh, uh, deal with the under, underlying policy situations, you can go around killing people in a targeted way, whatever euphemism you want to say. But um, you've got to get get to grips with the actual underlying problems. My my sort of final thought to for your listeners, which is. The overall conclusion is that we talked earlier about how the Cold War probably, or when you look at it from the intelligence and security perspective, the Cold War started before Western powers thought uh, it did. And the Cold War, from Russia's perspective, never really ended. And what we're seeing right now is actually uh, the end of the Cold War and Putin trying to correct it. So that narrative that the cold war is all nicely done dusted thank you very much it's just no longer the case and um i hope that my book contributes to that uh, public policy narrative well i definitely think that if people spend the time and really absorb some of the lessons in there uh, it's a it's a great book it's very very it's it's dense in that there, there is a lot there. The the writing is is very easy, very digestible, uh, but not simple. It's it's very fluid. It's it's you know all of the gripping spy stories that you want. But if you're listening, the 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 echoes from the 20s, the 30s, the 50s. I mean, right down to the present day. If you want to understand what is happening, what our own weaknesses are uh, in the West and what the strengths and weaknesses are uh, in the, the traditional methods that, that Putin certainly sees himself as a part of that lineage, uh, then, then I, I definitely encourage our listeners to, to pick up the book. The book is Spies, the Epic Intelligence War Between the East and West. Calder Walton, thank you so much for joining us. I, I really hope you we get a chance to speak again. I, I really thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the next time. Thank you, John. And thank you, John. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or a guest you would like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For John Waters and everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.